Yeah, so if you came out tonight and you're expecting a course on the Reformation, you're in the right place. So the title of the course is 500 and Counting. And Pastor Chris actually put this idea in my radar because a while ago he says, you know, there's a lot of people that come to our church and they're always curious about Catholicism and Protestantism. And would you be interested in teaching a course on that? My first reaction is not really, because I'll just make friends and make more enemies. And... um, but I thought, you know, being that this fall is the 500th anniversary, and you may be reading blogs on it or hearing articles on it, uh, I thought, well, this is a great time to talk more comprehensively about the Protestant Reformation vis-a-vis Roman Catholicism and uh, culture and politics and some of those uh, spin-off influences that resulted from the Reformation. So that's why we're here tonight. So you'll notice we're going to meet... It's, it's going to be over seven weeks, but uh, there's one week when several of us are at the Vertical Church Conference, so we won't be here. So we're actually only in class for six weeks. So the 12th, the 19th, the 26th, those are back to back to back. And then the 3rd, uh, the 10th, we're off on the 17th. That's when several of us will be in Oakville at the Vertical Church Conference. And then I just think it's kind of cool that the very final day that we meet is the actual 500th anniversary. And we normally do hold these courses on a Tuesday, but it just happens to fall on a Tuesday. I suspect that some of you who are under the age of 40 might be out trick-or-treating that night. Um, but for the rest of you that love Jesus, we're going to be here studying <laughs> things that are, that are important, okay? So uh, we're going to meet for about two hours uh, every night. And I'm already sensing this in the room. We're at that time of the year where we're not quite sure whether we should turn the furnace on or the AC, right? Kind of in that weird time. So... It might get like really hot all of a sudden and people can throw windows open or whatnot. We'll deal with that as we go, okay? So let me just begin with a word of prayer and then I'll do a little uh, prep to help us to understand where we're headed and then we'll just kind of get right into some material tonight. So Father, thank you so much that you are a God of grace and you are a God of mercy. And in fact, all Christians of all stripes and all persuasions have believed that since the time of Jesus. And we're thankful that there's commonality on that uh, uh, On that belief. But Father, we also understand that sometimes we can start to get confused about the role of works in our salvation or the place of baptism. And uh, we know that there's been a lot of battles fought over the centuries as to uh, how these doctrines play out in our lives and in our world. And Father, we pray that as we study history and as we cross reference scripture, that you would give us greater clarity and charity as well, as we seek to dialogue intelligently with those of differing persuasion. So bless us and encourage us all tonight as we meet and be with the probably 60 or 70 kids that are down the hall being ministered to as well. Just encourage their hearts tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So you can just look at the front page there that I gave you. I just gave you a handout. You're going to have to bring some paper to take notes. I used to do extensive notes, but then you'd print off like 100, and then there'd be 50 the next night, 75 the next night. You had all this wastage, right? So uh, I'm just going to ask you to take some notes. But I did give you the first page, and basically it says there that this Halloween's the 500th anniversary. The Protestant Reformation is normally dated by historians as beginning on Halloween, which is October the 31st, 1517, and ending at uh, 1648. Now, obviously, we know from history, those aren't necessarily as abrupt as we might like, but we kind of tend to condense history into certain pockets. So that's the Reformation era. And this event, including the events leading up to it, I've written there, have had significant, often 
that should be misunderstood impact, or sorry, understated impact upon our church, our churches, some of you are here from other churches, our understanding of truth, how do we arrive at truth? Politics, especially capitalism actually is largely attributed to Protestantism. You can see that in American politics where Catholics are up to recently kind of outsiders, but in Canadian politics, Catholics are the insiders when it comes to the prime ministership and cabinet positions. And Western individualism. So a person without knowledge of the Reformation will fail to understand many of the underlying forces behind this, like churches like ours, our teaching emphases, our preaching, our mission, and, and also just in society, several cherished Western values like individualism, like freedom of speech, like the separation of the church and state. That's all as a result of the Reformation. So again, the Reformation did not just affect Catholics and Protestants. It affected governments. It affected cultures. It had a bearing on the founding of the United States of America. A lot of ripple effects. So I wrote down there, who's going to benefit? Hopefully you're in one of these categories. Those interested in the reasons why we emphasize certain doctrines, why are the solas of our faith, uh, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, why are those important to us? Why do we talk about that stuff a lot? Those interested in politics, as I've already alluded to. Those interested in evangelizing Catholics, and to a lesser extent, uh, Eastern Orthodox, who resulted uh, from a split in the church probably another 500 years before the Reformation. And then Catholics. You may be a Catholic here tonight. Uh, if you're interested in, in your belief systems, um, if you go to some Catholic websites, Catholic apologetics websites almost always acknowledge that Catholics are often ignorant of Catholicism. So that's their words. So I'm helping them, helping those of you that might be Catholics to understand your belief systems and hopefully evaluate them critically. Preachers and teachers who are going to be dealing with issues like justification by grace through faith. This is important stuff. Students of history, students in Christian and Catholic schools that want to understand their distinctives. So hopefully you all fall into one of those categories. Now, I want to acknowledge right up, I, I, when I teach, I like to kind of read the room a little bit and try to get a feel for what possible objections people might have and then address those. But there's a lot of people here tonight, so I put them in writing. And I want to acknowledge that whenever this kind of stuff is taught, there's potentially three different emotional slash mental slash cultural roadblocks that may hinder you hearing what I want you to hear. Let me just say right up front, I am in no way, shape, or form interested in creating proud peacocks. Not interested in that. I'm not interested in people leaving here tonight thinking, hey, ha, 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 you know, na, 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 we're, we're Protestants and you're a Catholic. Not interested in that. Not interested in arrogance. Not interested in pride. Not interested in picking fights with people. Totally not interested in hurting people's feelings. That's not why we're here tonight. So if you're like a bulldog that likes that kind of stuff, you're going to be disappointed because that's not why we're here tonight. But, having said all that, if you have historic ties to Roman Catholicism, some of what you hear tonight might hurt you. I'm acknowledging it, but I'm also making you aware of it so that you're conscious of that, and you don't allow it to hinder your ability to hear the facts and the truth that I want to present to you tonight and in the coming weeks. 
Secondly, many of you may come from church traditions or from secular culture that's not used to the critical evaluation of competing theological positions. And you may then interpret any robust dialogue or debate about competing theological positions as being unloving. And that's not why we're here tonight either. We're not here to be unloving. I think it's a loving thing to tell people the truth. And I think it's especially loving to tell people the truth when you may be dealing with issues that relate to our eternal destiny. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? So that's what we're going to talk clearly and articulately about several things. Not to bash, not to tear down, but because if the historic divide between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is valid, then it does hinge on people's eternal destinies. So we need to have a conversation about it then. And then third, our culture is big into universalism, and that's invaded many of our churches, where the idea is, well, every belief system is valid. And to a large degree, I think that some of that results from the, the reality that there are so many stinking views out there that it can be extremely confusing. And after a while, you're like, well, nobody's right. Or how, do I, how can I possibly know who's right? So universalism sometimes is arrived at as a result of philosophical thinking, theological inquiry, but oftentimes I think it's an emotional thing. I've just heard so many different views, I don't know what to believe anymore, so I'm just going to go with everybody's right, or there's truth everywhere. Now, there is truth in probably all false religions. It's probably, there's probably more truth found in Roman Catholicism than in any other competing religion. So we have a lot of commonality with Roman Catholics in many areas, but there's also some substantive differences. I've given you a select source list of materials, so if you are concerned about uh, plagiarism, I'm just going to acknowledge right up front I'm plagiarizing. So there's my source list. (laughs) And I must do that because I wasn't there. So I'm relying upon several sources to help us tonight. So there's a little bit of an outline. There is one evening where I have to go to a church function in Dallas, so I have a able substitute coming in to teach. I'm not going to tell you his name, but um, he's about this tall, balding, extremely good looking. He's one of our elders. He has an earned seminary degree, and he's sitting over beside Marilyn Adams. That's all I'm going to tell you. And I'm not going to tell you what night he's going to come, because then you're going to play favorites, and more people are going to be at his class, and I'm going to feel bad. He's just going to show up one night, okay? All right. So let's get into it. So let's talk about some of the events leading up to the Reformation. So why did the Reformation happen? It wasn't just some guy sitting around that decided to reform the church because it was Halloween and he wanted to get out and do something weird. We're going to talk about several events which span a period of time roughly 100 years before the Protestant Reformation. And... To comfort those of you that may come from Roman Catholic persuasions, most of this is drawn from secular sources. So you go, go to a library, get a, get a history book on Western society. This, you'll see this corroborated in those sources. So this is not Protestant spin. 
This is the kind of stuff you'll see in, in history books. And even Roman Catholic scholars will admit uh, to the vast majority of this. They may have difference of, differences of opinion as to the importance of it or lack thereof. So they may have evaluated differently on the level of value, but the facts are the facts are the facts. And I, I just think that's really helpful. So really what, it, what happened was the church, as we know it, the dominant church in the world, the dominant church body in the world at this time was called the Catholic Church. Now, does anybody know what the word Catholic actually means? Yeah. Yeah, everybody. So we tend to use it now as a denominational label, but historically it just meant the universal church. So meaning that it wasn't Harvest Bible Chapel in Windsor, Ontario. It was the church. So there's the universal church, and the universal church expresses itself in local assemblies of believers. So the church, the worldwide church, was always called the Catholic church. Now, that's why if you read some of the creeds, where it talks about the Catholic Church and a lot of Protestants. I'm not going to read that. It's talking about Catholics. That creed is not referring to Roman Catholics. It's just referring to people that are part of the universal church. So it's t- completely appropriate for me to call myself a Catholic, but I would spell it out with a small c, because it's not a label. It's just a word that means I consider myself a Christian that's part of the universal church. So the ca- the, the, when, when Catholic became a title, we throw a capital C on it, It's headquartered out of Rome, so it's called the Roman Catholic Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church has five patriarchs that govern the church rather than one pope. They have five patriarchs, and they split from the church many centuries earlier. We're not talking about them tonight. But we're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church centered out of Rome. And as the Roman Catholic Church plotted along through history corruption began to influence and enter into the church. So here's some of the things, the disturbing things that started to happen. So a religious development was largely downloaded by Rome to local priests. So there's no internet. Think about it. If you're going to write a book, the cost of printing, which were just kind of, the printing press was just kind of coming into vogue, very expensive. Plus, the Catholic Church had chosen Latin as its language, so only the educated elite even understood it. So instead of trying to disseminate information out of Rome to the churches of Europe, religious education for the laity was downloaded to local priests. Now, this, in theory, sounds like a great idea. Hey, spread out the work, right? Delegate allow people to use their gifts. The problem was, is that given the time of history that they were in, there were very few educated people. Most of you in this room probably have a high school diploma. Several of you have advanced degrees. Back then, the majority of people couldn't even read and write. And virtually zero, except for the nobility, understood or could read Latin which is what the religious documents of the day were written in and delivered in. So Rome had the brainwave. Let's download it to the local priests. The local priests were predominantly peasants, not the bishops, not the archbishops, not the cardinals, but the local priests that were doing the educating were largely peasants. So they had to get up and perform mass. 
in Latin. And they didn't understand Latin. So on occasion, the wealthy and the nobility would come to Mass, and they'd chuckle and giggle literally in the back row because they know a little bit of Latin, and clearly the guy reading the Mass doesn't, and he's butchering it, and he has no clue how to read the religious text. So he's, he's absolutely nearly ignorant about what Roman Catholicism even is. And so this was kind of going on and, and, and moving on, but as the nobility class continued to pursue education in Europe, they started to speak out against how pitiful the preaching was and the teaching was and the, this, the general educational system was in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, moving up a rung or two, now this would have included priests, but clerics a little bit further up the ladder were especially guilty of this. So we're talking about bishops and archbishops and cardinals. Because of a lack of centralized control and just the general state of humanity, clerical immorality became widely known. Widely known. It was not, not even uncommon to have Catholic priests with concubines. Now, they were technically supposed to be celibate, so they didn't get married. But they had concubines. Some of them, because it got to a point where they had to purchase their posts, purchase their offices, would purchase multiple offices in different uh, dioceses, some of whom never even went to those dioceses during the entire course of their ministry. You'd be like me saying, I'm the pastor of Timbuktu. Have you ever been there? No, never been there. Do you know where it is? No idea. But I'm the pastor. And send me your tithes directly to me, payable to Aaron David Rock. It's that, that kind of thing was going on. Drunkenness, gambling, pervasive in the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, bear in mind that lay people didn't participate in the life of the church like they do in our churches. They didn't participate. They spectated. So there were no checks and balances. Congregations didn't vote priests in and out of office. You couldn't meet the priest in, in the foyer and say, hey, I got a problem. I need to confront you according to Matthew 18 for sin in your life. There was no avenue for that. So really the church was composed of clergymen. And then there's a bunch of people, theologically they're part of the church, but there's no participation at all and no input into the life of the church. So we have low, low, absent, uh, low literacy rates, low to absent literacy rates among clergy, more educated classes horrified by clerical abuses, laughing, growing disgruntled at their ineptitude, and by the way, I think there's a little lesson in that for us because some of us, myself included, come from churches that rail against education for clergy as if that's some sort of a purist approach. Try it for seven or eight generations and see how your denomination fares. Now, there are many men that can more, more than adequately pastor churches without schooling. But chances are they were educated by people who are well-schooled. So you can get away with it for a couple generations and we understand that lots of theological schools go liberal or are, un, are, are irrelevant or aren't teaching core curriculum. We get that. But to have centralized, even accredited forms of education for clergy today, I'm still a big advocate of that. I think it's really important to put people through the ringer, 
to have them tested by people who know far much more of the Bible than them, and to accredit them and at least verify to the churches they're going to serve. This guy kind of knows a little bit, right? But that wasn't happening back then. There was no checks and balances in place. So the, one of the other big problems in, the, in, in, in uh, this, this time in history had to do with finances. Surprise, surprise, right? So once again, just to paint a picture, let's say you had an archbishop who was the bishop of a municipality in Germany, Poland, England, France. He'd purchased them. Cost them a lot of money, by the way. He'd purchased those offices. But he wasn't involved. But he would gain a tithe or a tax from these different religious groups. So you can understand that while it would cost him a lot of money up front, he would make more than enough money uh, back later on. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Thomas Wolseley. Uh, Thomas Wolseley was chancellor to King Henry VIII in England. He was the Archbishop of York for 15 years before he ever showed up there. Never been there, but he was the Archbishop of York for 15 years. It's a long time before he ever showed up there. There's, there's, uh, there's a, um, examples of other men that were archbishops. And one story, guy was an archbishop. The first time he ever showed up in his parish was in his casket. They buried him there. Wasn't there for his entire ministry. But he was collecting funds and offering, obviously, spiritual guidance. So except, with the exception of England, England was a little bit different in this regard. With the exception of England, pretty much all through Europe, the highest church offices within 100 years of the Reformation pretty much exclusively belonged to the nobility because they were purchased, not priesthoods. Nobody really wanted those. You could just hire an illiterate peasant to do your duties at the local church or parish, but pretty much all of the, the upper crust, they were purchased roles. And so you can understand then that they got mixed in with politics and really you've got dukes and lords and all that dueling, uh, uh, wearing the dual hat of uh, a government official and a clergyman and, you know, wh- which, which, uh, whose, whose kingdom are you serving on a given day, right? Are you serving your own or are you serving God's? And there was just a lot of mix-up in that regard. Uh, popes down in Rome, essentially, there were some good popes, but popes, for the most part, lived as princes. And many of them publicly were guilty of channeling their money to their families. So when the pope dies, he doesn't get to keep the Vatican. He doesn't get to keep the papal treasury. It all goes back, right? That was actually one of the main reasons why the Catholic Church early on instituted celibacy, because they wanted to keep the money that they had paid into their priests in the church. So if there's nobody to inherit the money, it goes to the church. So that was the main reason for it. And the, the, the way the popes often got around this is while they were alive, they would channel funds and give offices away to family members. And this was widely known, and people started getting more and more and more upset about it, Right? So it's building, it's building, it's building. Now you may have seen, I hope you don't watch it. I tried to watch one episode once because I didn't know much about it and it was disgusting. 
Uh, you may have seen um, a series on Netflix called The Borgia. Have you guys heard that? It's basically pornography. If you're going to watch it, it's basically pornography, so don't bother. But it chronicles the life of the family of Pope Alexander VI. And Pope Alexander VI, that's his papal name. You know, popes always take on a papal name. His name was Rodrigo Borgia. And uh, his, his term was from 1492 to 1503. So this is not too far before 1517 started the Protestant Reformation. He was publicly sexually promiscuous. He didn't even care that people knew about it. He was public about his sexual promiscuity and the children that he had with different wives. And it was just an absolute, um, well, it was just an absolutely immoral office that he was running out of Rome. So these are the kind of things that started to infuriate uh, well-meaning believers who maybe they couldn't understand the Bible. Most of them couldn't read. It really was the clergy's church after all. You couldn't pray to Jesus for salvation by yourself. You didn't own, you couldn't read a Bible. You didn't participate in the life of the church. So it was really the, cl- the clergy's church. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God was obviously moving in people's lives, and many people knew in their conscience that what was going on in the church was wrong. Now, probably the greatest tipping point or the greatest occurrence that caused the tipping point was the emphasis on indulgences. This is really important for us to understand, so we're going to spend a fair bit of time uh, on this tonight. So indulgences, in, in, the, in, Roman, in the Roman Catholic Church, in, uh, Roman Catholics taught that sin must be confessed. Okay, that's not a surprise. We believe that too. Sin must be confessed. Restitution must be made. Now, we would advocate that too. If you steal something from someone, you should, if you're truly repentant, why don't you give it back? Now, there's certain sins you can commit. You can't really make restitution. You kill somebody, you can't bring them back to life. But the idea of restitution is more than op- was more than optional in the church. It was required. So they taught that sin must be confessed, restitution should be made, and then penance needed to be made. So I'll just kind of write these words up here because we're going to kind of add some meaning to them. So you have sin in your life. We all have it. We've all sinned in thought, word, and deed. And you confess it. Now, in a lot of Protestant churches, that's where it ends. Confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because we are very interested as Protestants in our position with Christ, with God, right? So we confess our sin. Catholic Church at the time taught that restitution needed to be made and penance needed to be offered. How many of you have heard the word penance? Just a quick show of hands. How many of you may want to take a stab at what penance is? What is penance? You're supposed to do penance. Okay, Ian. Okay, good. He says, some sort of a religious act to demonstrate that you're sorry for your sin. So that could include many things. We're going to talk about that momentarily. But a prayer, for example, or a pilgrimage, those are the kinds of things that you would do to make penance for your sins. 
Now, what you need to understand is that when a person uh, engaged in penance, they could basically, they would go to the priest, the priest would hear the sin, and he would prescribe, if you will, a penance that was roughly equal to the sin that you had committed. Now, it's not actually true, as many Protestants teach about Catholics, that the Catholics were teaching that if you do X number of hours or days of penance, that you get X number of days or hours out of purgatory. That's not actually true. That's not in Roman Catholic literature, so we don't want to put words in Catholics' mouths. But what is true is that priests would try to determine, okay, based upon our knowledge of life in the early church, how much penance would an early Christian have paid for a particular sin? So someone steals a CD player. What's that worth? So they would assign a number of days or hours of penance that you had to perform, what would make sense to the early church? A week. So they'd assign a week for you to participate in this act of penance, and then you're free and clear. So that's what the Catholic Church taught and teaches. It's not true that the Catholic Church teaches, well, you do penance for seven days, you get seven days off purgatory. Okay, so this is just not true. Um, yeah. Church, I, when I was younger, or something like that, it's Catholic. Mm-hmm. And they had 12 windows, uh, colored glass, of the, the road to Christopher. Uh, yeah, stations of the cross, yeah. And uh, there had to do penance on every one of them. Yeah. So that would be one thing, go around and do penance on that. I'm going to give you a whole list. I have the official book. From the Catholic Church. Okay. I didn't write this. It's uh, 75 pages long. Okay. So you would uh, do penance. And very important for you to understand this. Indulgences in the form of penance was supposed to be for the temporal, the temporal penalties for sin or forgiveness from God. They were not to replace eternal punishment or purgatorial punishment. They're supposed to be. So the idea in the Roman Catholic Church is that I sin, I confess it. I confess it. Am I forgiven? Yes. Is there still a punishment that I owe to God? Yes. So what the indulgence does, it doesn't seek forgiveness from God. You don't do engage in uh, purchase or receive an indulgence in order to get forgiveness from God. Forgiveness is unmerited when you confess. But the temporal punishment still has to be paid. The merit of Christ doesn't pay the temporal punishment. You have to pay the temporal punishment. So you would then do penance in the form of an indulgence. Now, here's the thing. That's official Catholic doctrine. But by the time of the Reformation, because of 
ignorance of priests, ignorance in the church, many people falsely believed, and of course there would be some popes and archbishop that would be, would be okay with you thinking this, even though it wasn't official teaching, that you could secure total remission of sin now and in the next life by paying indulgences. So you've got to differentiate between official teaching and word on the street. And the word on the street was, come the time of the Reformation, and I'm going to give you an example of this, that you could get people out of purgatory, shorten your time in purgatory, all that kind of stuff by purchasing an indulgence. Now here's the basis for indulgences. The basis for indulgences is belief that God is merciful but also what do you think the next word is going to be just so he's merciful so he's going to give forgiveness but he's just so there's still going to be a punishment attached and then we have added to that a belief taught in the Roman Catholic Church that the church has access to something called the treasury of merit. Ever heard of that? Treasury of merit? This is a fascinating doctrine. And in order to help us to understand what this means, I'm going to take you to the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I like to use some original source material because I don't want you to think we're just making this stuff up. Okay, so this is, this is the current, up-to-date, Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's not a bad idea to have one. By the way, Pope John Paul II, a sure norm for teaching the faith. Right? So meaning that Pope John Paul II, this is affirmed by papal authority. This isn't some publisher making stuff up. This is official Roman doctrine. So I'm going to take you to 1476 and 1477. That's the number of the articles. There's page numbers too, but they're going to differ depending on who printed it. So we're going to go 1476 and uh, 1477. The first one, 1476, I don't think anybody in this room is going to find to be problematic at all, at least not in the big picture. So here's what it says. We also call those spiritual goods of the communion of the saints, and this is in italics, the church's treasury, which is not the sum total of the material goods which we have accumulated during the course of the centuries. So it's not about actual, tangible, physical treasuries. On the contrary, the treasury of the church, listen to this, is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, that's capital R, referring to Christ, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. I love that. I think that's great. The merits of Christ, right? It's the basis of everything. But then we have 1477. This is the next statement. 
the treasury includes as well. So this is the merit upon which salvation comes, sin is forgiven, eternal life is secured. You understand that, right? It's all about Christ in one, but now we have the as well. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are fully immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. Listen to this, next statement. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. Mystical bodies and caps, that's a reference to the church. So don't let anybody ever tell you that the Catholic Church believes that the, that the merits of Christ are sufficient for salvation. If you say that, you're contradicting the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church does not teach that. So, obviously I disagree with that, but don't put words in the Roman Catholic Church's mouth. The Roman Catholic Church very clearly, in the Catholic Catechism, teaches that the merits of Christ, the merits of Mary, and the merits of the saints are sufficient for your salvation. And that saints, in fact, attain their own salvation by their own good works. Really important for you to understand that. That's the treasury of merit. So, back to the idea of indulgences. God is merciful, but also just. We, as non-saints, not the Virgin Mary, we're not Christ, we get to draw upon the treasury of merit coming from Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, or saints. We get to draw upon their merit in order to be made right with God. And the church, this is the third doctrine of the church, the church alone, under the Pope, is authorized to dispense it. Okay? The church alone is authorized to dispense it. So that's the background to indulgences. So just to kind of put it into maybe my words, God loves you, but he also demands a reckoning. Christ's merits are sufficient, along with the Virgin Mary, and along with the saints that have gone before us to forgive us. But if you want access to that forgiveness, you're not allowed to go to God the Father by yourself. You have to access it through the church, and the church determines when it's dispensed to you. So it's like, I have $1,000. I want to get rid of it. Who wants some? I'm prepared to give, give it away in $10 intervals. But just a second, you can't come to me directly. You have to go through Chris. And if Chris chooses you can't get it, you can't get it, even though I may want you to have it. So that's, that's, the, that's the doctrine, right? So based upon this, what happened is a man by the name of Archbishop Albrecht, Albert in English, sent a fellow by the name of John Tetzel, really important guy, 
Okay, John Tetzel. And John Tetzel was an inquisitor in Poland, so he would obviously try people for heresy and that kind of thing. And he earned two degrees back-to-back, a licentiate in theology and a doctorate in sacred theology. Earned one one year, earned the next one the next year. And his, what we would call now a dissertation, was both dissertations revolved around uh, attacking or defeating, defending, whatever you, however you want to put it, uh, contradicting Martin Luther's theology, which was against indulgences. So the Pope's like, or the Archbishop's like, this is my guy. Okay, he's tried heretics, he's been successful. He has two degrees, basically debating Luther's view that indulgences are garbage. So he's my guy. So he appointed him to sell indulgences or to dispense merit. So the Catholic Church doesn't teach that merit comes from them. But they do teach that they're the ATM machine that dispenses it. So this is the ATM machine. We'll just call him Mr. ATM, okay? So he decides who gets indulgences. So he was kind of a marketing guru. And what, what has been discovered is uh, back at the time of the Reformation, most people were suspicious that the money that he was collecting was going to build St. Peter's Basilica. But it couldn't be that good. Half of it, historians later discovered, went to build St. Peter's Basilica, and the other half of it went to pay off Albrecht's debt that he'd incurred in order to become an archbishop. Isn't that fascinating? So he was, we would just call him a proverbial dirtbag. And John Tetzel was, is known, still continues to be known for the marketing slogan, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, maybe the wording was a little different. Maybe somebody made it up. Who knows? Who cares? But it was attributed to him. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, here's the coffer. I want your money in it. As soon as I hear the coin hit the bottom of the coffer, a soul, your mom, your dad, your grandma, somebody you've been praying for to get out of purgatory, is out. So very quickly, we'll talk about this maybe later in the course. Purgatory is not a biblical doctrine, but the Catholic Church would call it a logical doctrine, which says that when we die, all of our sins are not yet fully covered. And so you have to go to purgatory for a period of time to receive purification. And really only saints have the potential to bypass that. So you're, you're praying in the Roman Catholic Church for purgatory, uh, those in purgatory, they would come out. So interestingly, what Tietzel did is something that had never really been done in public before, in that bold of a way. He tied indulgences to eternal forgiveness. And that was never what the Catholic Church intended, and never what the Catholic Church taught. It doesn't even teach that today. But because, remember I said the official teaching was to cover temporal punishment? But people kind of started to think, well, maybe it covers eternal punishment. So he's just like, well, let's just go with that one. Because we can bring in more money if we can help people believe that 
it'll it'll cancel some eternal sins and debts that are owed to God. So he lived for a couple of years past the Reformation. It's interesting that Luther wrote him on his deathbed out of compassion. And basically the letter was to the effect, as I understand it, that uh, um, you know, you're to blame, but you're not totally to blame because we know you had your handlers. So it was actually a, a, an interesting act for a guy that wasn't always the nice, like Luther wasn't always the nicest person, but it was interesting that he wrote a letter of compassion to his, one of his arch nemeses on uh, their deathbed. So again, while Tetzel's belief are not true to Roman Catholic theology, they were true for living Roman Catholics at the time. So living Roman Catholics were under the assumption that if I'm going to be forgiven of the punishments of my sin, I need to purchase some indulgences. So then I want to talk to you a little bit about indulgences today. And this book, The Enchiridion of Indulgences, is also known as the Handbook of Indulgences, was affirmed in 1968 uh, by the Roman Catholic Church. And this particular electronic copy is from 2000, or sorry, uh, uh, 1998. And I want to read some excerpts from it because I think it is important to, like if you're dialoguing with Roman Catholics, you do have to differentiate between what was happening 500 years ago and what's happening today. What did they believe then and now, right? So it would be like a Muslim saying to you, well, all Christians are terrible because of the Crusades. Okay, give me a break. That was like 700 to 1,000 years ago. Like, why are we still talking about that, right? And by the way, I've studied extensively on the, on the Crusades, and there's a lot of parties besides Christians that got some apologizing to do. So don't just throw it all on the Christians. Nevertheless, uh, let's look at some of these teachings from the Roman Catholic Church today. And I want to take you to, I'm going to go to pages uh, 6 and 7. You can find this online, by the way. So maybe I should give you the the title. So it's the weird word. The Enchiridion of indulgences. Okay. So I'm going to be cross-referencing some material from this and also from the catechism, which is quoted in this. All right. So pages 6 and 7, there's a lot of material. I'm just going to grab a couple statements for you. So here's the definition, the modern-day definition of the current Roman Catholic Church. So an indulgence is the remission before God of the temporal punishment due for sins, not eternal, temporal punishment, already forgiven as far as their guilt is concerned. So again, you're paying the indulgence or you're engaging in this act. You've been forgiven by God, but you still owe him because he's just. This remission, the faithful, with the proper dispositions, because there's checks and balances put on it, and under certain determined conditions, acquire through the intervention of the church, again, this is number three, the church dispenses it, 
as the minister of reconciliation, that's the church, authoritatively dispenses and implies the treasury of the satisfaction won by Christ and the saints. So this is all modern theology, still in, in place. So the church is the ATM machine. The treasury of merit is a combination of the merit of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and all the saints. Statement number two. An indulgence is partial or plenary. So we're going to talk about two different kinds. According, according as it removes either part or all of the temporal repunishment for sin. And then it has a statement, no one acquiring indulgences can apply them to other living persons. So I can't buy an indulgence for David. He has to buy his own. However, partial as well as plenary indulgences can always be applied to the departed by way of suffrage. So you engage in certain acts, and you can apply those over there. So I want to take you to the Roman Catholic Catechism, section 1479, just to kind of help us to understand that statement a little bit more. The statement before that says, an indulgence is obtained through the church, there's the ATM language, by virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted to her by Jesus Christ. It's true that the church has more authority than most Protestants think. Okay? I'm actually a little bit Roman Catholic in that regard. The binding and loosing language of Matthew dispenses a lot of authority to the, the church's collective wisdom, especially in the area of church discipline. Nevertheless, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of temporal punishments due for their sins. And then down further it says, since the faithful departed, so that's a language for like someone who's been a believer and has died and has gone on to purgatory. Since the faithful departed, now being purified, that's in purgatory, are also members of the same communion of saints, one way we can help them is to obtain indulgences for them so that the temporal punishments due for their sins may be remitted. So at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Because you're not in purgatory for the purposes of eternal punishment. You would be in hell if that was you. You're in purgatory to pay for temporal, as temporal punishment and purification for your sins. So therefore... Um, a modern Roman Catholic, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, can participate in indulgences or purchase indulgences or engage in acts of penance in order to, I don't want to say shorten the time, because purgatory is understood to be timeless, but shorten the punishment that is given to the person who is in purgatory. That's another reason why it's not really appropriate to say that Catholics teach, well, you get seven days off purgatory or a year off purgatory, because purgatory is timeless. But if you could picture the sins that need to be purified from a person's life who's in purgatory as a five-gallon bucket, and they've been there for 100 years and they've gotten rid of a gallon and there's four left, and it's just taken a long time, you could help them along. So you could participate in indulgences in order to maybe eat up another half-gallon of the bucket that's owed. That's kind of the idea. And then... I'm going to skip down to number eight. It says, besides the Roman pontiff. Who's the Roman pontiff? The Pope. Besides the Roman pontiff, to whom the dispensation of the whole 
spiritual treasury of the church has been entrusted by Christ our Lord. So ultimately, even though he can delegate it, all of number three, when you speak of the church, is on the Pope, who's currently alive. I'm not sure how that works when you get two living popes, but we got Benedict. He's still alive, right? So um, all of that is actually ultimately on the Pope, but they can only grant indulgences by ordinary power. So everyone else can grant it by ordinary power. So what does that look like? It looks like this. So what this then is, is all the checks and balances that different members of the clergy, depending on your rank, can dispense by certain, so there's a first general grant, there's a second general grant, there's different powers that are dispensed to you based upon your office as to how far you can go in offering and enacting the pontiff's ability to dispense merit to you based upon the merit of Christ, the virgins, the Virgin Mary, and, and the saints. So then, you'll in this guide, it's like no one below the pontiff can, and it gives several write-ups. And then this is what diocesan bishops can do, this is what metropolitans can do, this is what patriarchs can do, this is what cardinals can do, and so forth. So there's all these checks and balances as to how much money, using our imagery of money, my $1,000, you're allowed to dispense. So I might say, okay, you know that $1,000 you guys all want? I'm going to give Chris the ability to dispense $10 bills, Dave, you can do five, and Orianne, I'll let you dispense toonies. And maybe if you or promoted, I'll let you go to $20 bills, that kind of thing. So it's all a lot of different checks and balances. So then later in the book, um, there is prayers that you have to pray. They're all written out. So these are all, you don't have to make them up. So if you're looking for a partial indulgence, one might be, Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom his love commits me here, enlighten and guard, uh, rule and guide me, amen. And the priest might say, okay, you've got to repeat that every day for a month, something like that. Another one might be to offer the Pope a, um, uh, to receive from the Pope a, a papal blessing or to visit the patriarchal basilicas in Rome. So a plenary indulgence is granted to the faithful who devoutly visit one of the four patriarchal basilicas in Rome and there recite one, our God, our Father, and the Creed. And you have to do it on either a titular feast, on a holy day of obligation, once a year, or any other day of your choice. So if you're a little more wealthy, the priest might say, okay, you've been a really bad boy, so you've got to go to Rome and visit the four basilicas and at each one of them you have to do this, and then the temporal punishment is forgiven. Or you can apply it to someone who's in purgatory already. Visiting an early Christian cemetery or catacomb. Um, again, various recitations. Um, taking part in a teaching or doctrine class. Um, what would be some other ones? Um, yeah, different. Have you ever opened up a newspaper and someone's got like a big write-up in there? Kind of like, that's what that is, right? So a lot of people would be, well, I've received a order from my priest to publish this particular statement 
in the newspaper. So it's going to cost a bit of money. I've got to put it out there. That's a person seeking an indulgence. And it's not their own writing. It's someone else. So literally page after page, um, visit to the church or an altar on a day of consecration, visit to the church or an oratory on All Saints Day, pious invoca- invocations. You So some of them might be, we adore you, O Christ, we bless you because your holy cross, you have redeemed the world. By the way, a lot of these, like it's good language. May the Holy Trinity be blessed. Christ conquers. Christ reigns. O heart of Jesus, burning with love for us, inflame our hearts with love for you. O heart of Jesus, I place my trust in you. So when you read that, you're like, why would you not want someone to say that? Well, it's not that we wouldn't want someone to say that. A lot of that would make for great lyric and songs or great statements in preaching. But what's the purpose of it? That's where the Protestants started to react to that, that they had a different view as to uh, why one would make statements uh, like that, okay? So really helpful if you want to read up on that and look at, you know, an original source. This might be something to, to check out. So I also want to um, I think I, ta- I, I address the, the whole idea of time off for purgatory. So again, it's not so much related to time, but really just for the temporal punishment of sins. One thing that is important to understand is that the modern Catholic Church has gone to great lengths to stress, and thank God for this, that confession also needs to be tied to the proper heart attitude. So in this document and in other Catholic sources, whereas in the Reformation it was more like, give me your money and we'll dispense some mercy. The Catholic Church is like, no, we're fed up with that. Like, we have to emphasize the heart. There has to be a, a, a contrition of heart. There has to be a true confession of you know, sin and that kind of thing. So there's, there's, there has been a heavy emphasis put on that. But nevertheless, on the level of substance, we need to understand the teaching of the Catholic Church was then and is now that you are paying for the temporal punishment for your sins through indulgences, and in actual fact, you're kind of paying for them eternally too because you can pay them for people pay them forward for people who are in purgatory. You can't pay them forward for people in heaven or in hell, but you can pay them forward for people who are in purgatory. So as a result of all this, some of the high-ranking clerics, it just come from the lady, started to call for reform in the church. So it came from clerics, men like Luther, and it came from peasants as well. John, you had a question or comment? Yeah, and, and certainly we would say that's true if you're not a believer. God does take the offense personally. You are going to experience the wrath of God if you've rejected God. But Protestantism has a different view as to our position and standing with God after we've been justified. And that affects a whole bunch of stuff. It affects our whole understanding of punishment 
and wrath and justice. The just wrath of God is appeased through Christ's merits, period. So for the Protestant, the treasury of merit is all on one. It's on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's not on Mary. It's not on the saints. It's all on Jesus. And the church might recognize forgiveness in a contrite person's life. The Bible talks about confessing our sins to one another. But we don't dispense it. God dispenses it. He dispenses it temporally, and he dispenses it eternally. It's all on God. So we agree. God is merciful. He's also just. But the justice of God is satisfied through the death of Christ. Having said that, I think that Protestant churches probably, as by and large, haven't done a really good job in helping people to understand uh, the consequences of temporal sin, even in the lives of believers. We kind of just, oh, you confess, we're going to give you a pass. And we probably need to talk about that a little bit more. I mean, there are consequences. We know legally there's consequences to sins that happen to also be criminal. And there's also consequences to messing around in your spouse. There's also consequences to drug use. There's also consequences to not handling your money properly. There's also consequences to being an angry, grouchy person. There's consequences to that. And I think some Protestants think that they can just bypass that Jesus taking care of it. And I just made, you know, made my, I, I, I mentioned it in my nighttime prayers and everything's good. And they think they can kind of bypass all that. And the reality is, in this world, sometimes there's still consequences. Like you can be disqualified for certain ministries or certain offices or for periods of time excommunicated from the church if it's not confessed sin and those kinds of things, right? So we, we probably need to do a little more thinking and a little more work in that area. Josh? could. They could if there's um, confessed sin in their life that has not been paid for by penance. They could. We would never attribute it to condemnation because we have Romans 8.1 and we take it seriously. So we would never... That's why when I preach, one of the things that I, you know, you know as, you, as you grow as a preacher, things crystallize in your mind, and you'll hear me using at different times in my, my preaching journey certain language that I'm probably using it because I'm thinking a lot about it. So two of the words that are kind of resonating in my heart and life a lot is the difference between condemnation and conviction. And I'm not sure we always differentiate between the two. So let's say I'm preaching a hard-hitting sermon. The text demands it, and I'm kind of calling the church out. You know, speaking sort of prophetically, like we need to get our act together. Some people can interpret that. that you're condemning me. You're judging me. You know, you're, you're, I thought grace was enough. I thought mercy was enough. I thought, or I thought we're a gospel preaching church. And if it's true that I'm condemning or judging God's people, then I've crossed the line. But, but it's a different thing to preach with conviction. And, and conviction really flows from a huge love for God and God's holiness and a desire to guard it so that God might be glorified. 
So we kind of slap each other around at times, mutually, so that we can bring greater honor to God. But that's not about our eternal status. It's about our temporal fellowship. We want to maximize our temporal fellowship with God. And we want to bring him glory. So we need to be convicted on a regular basis about blind spots, sin in our lives, so that we can kind of have that fellowship with God that we also desire. David? Sometimes this, these two words overlap, but sometimes they're, I think they're a little bit different. There's a difference between being sinful and immature. Now, sometimes we're sinfully immature. But you could, you could be the kind of person, you're like sinning. It's not like you're blaspheming or you're being stingy or you're lashing out at people, but you're, you're just kind of immature. You don't maybe fully appreciate God's grace. You're not fully engaged in worship or you're not fully given over to Christ's work in your life. God disciplines us because he wants us to grow up. So an, an, an analogy might be a, a good sports coach. He's not yelling at the boys, you know, run, run harder, run faster, throw the ball further, like do some push-ups because he's punishing them. But he knows they need discipline if they're going to succeed when the game actually starts. And we... So sometimes God you know, disciplines us in the sense that we're living with unconfessed sins. We won't get over it. Okay, I'm going to withdraw some blessings. Okay, that's not working. I'm going to push some consequences your way. Okay, you're still not paying attention. I'm going to crack the whip, right? Consequences. And it's not eternal judgment, but God's calling it for what it is in the present. But other times, I think it's just a, a matter of there's a blind spot in my life. Maybe I'm not, I, I, I kind of know faith, but it's theoretical. And I need to really know faith. So God allows me to go through a physical problem or lose a loved one or whatever it might be so that I truly can put this word called faith, which up till now is rather theoretical, into practice and become a man of faith. And I think, I think most of us that have been walking with the Lord for a long time appreciate it after it's all said and done. We don't want it in the present. You've got to be kind of weird, like, bring on the suffering, Lord, I need to grow up. I'm not there yet. But as I look back when the Lord has disciplined me, I'm certainly appreciative for it now, just like I'm appreciative for the discipline my parents gave me when I was growing up. Didn't like it then, kind of understood it, kind of didn't. But I'm appreciative for it now. Yeah, James? It could if it's a if if it's it could if it was dispensed to you or recommended to you as an indulgence. 
we might get into this later too. You need to understand that the Roman Catholic teaching doesn't teach assurance of salvation either, right? So if you commit a mortal sin and that mortal sin is not dealt with, you're going to hell. You could have been baptized or whatever you want, but you're, you're, you will not be in heaven. I'll take you to the Roman. I'll take you to the Catechism for that, just to back that up. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because every religion does. They just name it something different. And there may be different nuances to it. But like human nature is tit for tat. That's how the world rolls. And that's why we often say, right? What's the, what's the two words we often just kind of used to differentiate between all faiths outside of biblical Christianity and biblical Christianity. Do and done, right? So Christianity says Christ has done it all. Every other religion, you can name it whatever you want, create all different systems. It's about what you have to do to gain, you might call it merit in one religion or karma in another religion or good works in another religion, whatever you want to call it in order to please or please or appease God or Allah or the gods or this nebulous thing called Brahman or make it to Nirvana or get out of the cycle of reincarnation. It's all the same. At the end of the day, it's all the same. And all of those religions and all of those belief systems stem out of this cultural reality and this innate sense that we are, in fact, guilty and we've got to do something to work it off. Because that's how we treat each other. You get paid if you do certain things, and you don't get paid if you don't. We talk about unconditional love, but most of us practice conditional love, even in our churches. So my love and appreciation and respect for you is conditional upon, dot, 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 dot. Right? I mean, let's just be real about it. Marriages, a lot of marriages are about conditional love. And as long as it's being ladled out, everything's great. So because those are all the influences, that's the world we live in, we're always fighting that. I mean, I, I was taught justification by grace through faith alone when I was a very little boy and believed it. But I spent, and I'm probably even spending some time trying to get my Heavenly Father's favor, are we not all, on some con- subconscious level? Are you okay with me, God? Am I doing enough for you? That's, that's there. And then some churches just kind of build it into the structure. Just, it's just more obvious. Other churches are more subtle about it. But it's in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much all the people that were doing that were, they weren't all priests, but they were monks, which was kind of like a a, a lay priest, for lack of a better way of putting it. They were people who dedicated themselves to religious orders, and those religious orders put together certain practices, which generally involved disciplines of abstinence. So remove sex or remove food or remove comfort or remove yourself from society, right? So... If you study spiritual disciplines, there's, uh, there's disciplines of 
abstinence and there's disciplines of addition. So you're adding prayer, you're adding Bible study, you're, you're uh, adding giving. Over here, you're, you're, you know, you're subtracting food, fasting, you're subtracting people, solitude. So there's the pluses and the minus. The monks love the minus list, the disciplines of absence or abstinence. And now they dedicated themselves to prayer in the process, but the focus was on beating the flesh into, into submission. And, and part of that was influenced by a dualistic notion that believed that the immaterial is innately good and the material is innately bad. And what we know as Christians is both are true. That uh, creation was created and declared to be good by God, and of course it's been corrupted by sin, but there's still goodness not moral goodness without God, but there's still good things in creation. Beauty of a sunset, general revelation, just the joy of life, joy of relationships, joy of marriage, joy of raising children, grandchildren. There's a lot of neat things to enjoy in this life. But the spiritual is also both good and bad. So we have demons and we have angels. We have the devil and God is spirit, who is good. So dualism doesn't see that. It's like everything, food is terrible. You kind of got to have it just to get by, but it's bare minimum. Drink is terrible, just a little bit just to get by. Sex is terrible. Maybe a few people got to do it to procreate, to keep the world going. But it's all bad, right? It's just a very negative view of the material world. And that flows out of, philosophically, what's called dualism. So. Yes, Marjorie. Dorothy. Oh, Dorothy at the back. Okay. Praying to angels? Like praying to angels? No. Because angels are created beings. They're not material created beings, but they're created spiritual beings. So biblical Christianity teaches us to pray to God. Now, you can address the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Technically speaking, you're praying to the Father through the Son with the aid of the Spirit. But um, we only pray to God. So we don't pray to saints. We don't pray to angels. Obviously, we don't pray to demonic powers. We only pray to God. We don't pray to each other. Yeah. 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 Have you heard the rumor that the Catholic Church... Did you register, by the way? Sorry? I don't see your name on the list. <laughs> you don't even go there. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Just because I wouldn't Story. submit. Right, right. right. She wouldn't hit the submit button because she's against submission. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Have you heard the rumor that the Catholic Church is canceling purgatory because it's not biblically founded? And secondly, how do you get your pals out of purgatory in the meantime until they cancel it? How long are they there? How do you know how much you got to do in order to spring them? Yeah. So no, I haven't heard that. Okay. Okay. Uh, secondly, purgatory is not is not a how long place. It's a how much place. So there's no time attached to it. So you're not there for a hundred years or five years. You're there. It's a timeless how do you know place. 
when the temporal sins that you've committed that have not been atoned for and for which you've not received merit from the treasury of merit have been purged from your life. So purgatory means purification. Yeah, so if you are there up to the final judgment, yeah, then you're out. But there could be people in purgatory now that were, were put in there 5,000 years ago. And there could be some that are you know, out in a week. But again, 5,000 years in a week aren't relevant because it's not a place of time. David? Mm-hmm. It's an awesome question, and it's, it's actually a question that belies our modern Western worldview, that those are different things. They weren't different things back then. They were one and the same. So there was no separation of church and state. What was happening in the church, that was society in Europe. The clergy ruled society. The church ruled society. The church had kings and emperors on a string, right? So you couldn't appoint kings and deal with issues of succession without papal authority. So it's, it's a fascinating question because it's just so foreign to us that those things wouldn't be different. But what we are going to do is we're going to talk about the fact that after the Reformation, because those things did become different, that society, we'll just call it the secular realm, the temporal realm, is still hugely affected by the secular or the sacred realm. And as much as the modern era, the really modern, I'm not talking about the modern era in terms of eras of time, but this day and age that we live in, as much as we've tried to separate the two, there's still a lot of influence back and forth between spiritual realities and secular realities. So yeah, in Europe at the time, you're dealing with a peasant class, you're dealing with uh, feudal systems, you're dealing with um, a majority of majority of people were peasants, they didn't own their land, they worked on farms or plantations of sort for other people. Um, you know, that kind of probably lasted a little longer in places like Ireland than it did in some other countries of Europe. But basically, you have a mass of poor peasants, and you have an aristocracy that were all connected to or part of the church. And that was your structure. And that's how you operated. So laws and uh, punishments for civil misdeeds, those are all connected to the spiritual realm. And your ability to own or not own land were all connected to certain way of reading scripture or certain notions of who owned the wealth or who should have the wealth and tax. There's no, there's no taxation that's paid to the king that the church doesn't have its hand in. So you know how like even today we have clergymen who receive, um, I think in the States they call them something like uh, 
housing allowance. We call it clergy residence deduction. And the justification for that today is largely because if you take a cleric and a non-cleric and line up their education, this guy's always going to make less commensurate, so we'll give him a break in his taxes. But the history of that is actually a negative history. So back in Europe, you could have this like quote-unquote multi-million dollar cleric just got mountains and mountains and mountains of wealth, but they didn't pay any taxes. And that was one of the other things economically that affected the Reformation. The, not from guys like Luther, it wasn't a huge concern for him at the time, but the peasants were super upset. These rich guys who are churchmen are taking our money, and we still got to pay money to Rome or to our local church, but they're not paying this, so they're just getting greater and greater and greater temporal wealth, and people are getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure it was. The, the Protestant Reformation brought about political revolution. The Protestant Reformation ultimately brought about economic revolution. The Protestant Reformation ultimately brought about the founding of the United States of America. So, yeah, there was revolution, but because they're so tied in, 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 the, in, let's say, some German guy living in 1517, he wouldn't have made that mental distinction. There's revolution going on, slash reformation going on. It's the same thing because it's affecting everything. Now that would, it's interesting that in Canada, that same notion would have still been present at least in residual form in Quebec, right up until the 1950s. So when early uh, Baptist missionaries went into Quebec in the 1950s, and maybe even into the early 60s, they were put in jail in our country for preaching on the streets. Some of these men are still alive, and they're very old men now. But um, that's just shocking. That happened in our country? Yeah, they were put in jail for preaching Protestant doctrine publicly in a very, what at the time was an extremely Roman Catholic province, which really is, is probably one of the most atheistic provinces now, just in a very short period of time. So we still have that, that lack of true separation between church and state. But if you read almost any evangelical denomination today has some statement somewhere buried in their documents to do with separation of church and state. Now, some of like the modern, funky, up-and-coming ones don't because they don't understand history. And maybe it's not really all that relevant right now. But the idea of separation of church and state was in the documentation of church after church after church, denomination after denomination after denomination, for generations because of the Protestant Reformation, even though many of the people reading it didn't understand why. Because we're so far removed from it now, like half a millennia removed from it. So it's really interesting to, again, consider how the, 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 no, the worldview at the time was just so radically different. 
And it was also insular. You didn't know what was going on elsewhere. The Reformation, we, we date it to Martin Luther, but the Reformation took place in different European countries for similar reasons around that same time, but these guys weren't even talking to each other at the time. So we might say it's a move of God or secularize. It was a revolution of civilization or something like that. But it's interesting how it was kind of taking place in different eras or areas. Yeah. Sandra? Um, I just had a question about purgatory. Mm. It's so non-biblical. Mm-hmm. Can you just give us like a cold notes of how, where the whole idea came? Because it seems like the Catholic faith is built so much on that. that... Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just take you to the section because I think I was looking at this earlier today. I'll just take you to the, the definition here in um, okay, 1030 to 1032. I think that might be a good idea to crack some windows. Could someone just crack a few along there? All right. Right. So here, here's, here's how they describe. So bear in mind, too, it's not... Th- there are verses that you can draw to back up pretty much any belief you want to create or whatever, right? And um, I know that because we've all seen people do that or interpret Scripture differently, it can kind of almost reduce the authority of God's Word and make us... Again, how do I know who's right? So Catholics will pull Scripture to defend their views... But what you need to understand, too, about Catholic theology is, okay, there's, there's four, ultimately, we'll skip in ahead a bit, there's four questions that Catholics and Protestants dif, uh, differ on. They are as follows. The nature of salvation, where authority comes from, what the church is, and what it means to live as a Christian. Those are the four questions that we differ on. So, justification by grace, we differ on that. Um, Where authority resides, what the church is, and then essentially who you are as an individual Christian. So when it comes to authority, authority... We, be, we believe in civil authorities that were to pay our taxes and be good citizens and all that. We believe in the authority of parents over their children. We believe in the authority of husbands over their wives, of elders in the local church. Like We believe in, in authority, but those aren't ultimate authorities for us. There's only one final authority on matters of faith and practice, and that's the Scriptures. And so when we talk about, why don't we call it revelatory authority? So where is that? Where's revelatory, like revelation from? Where is that found? Protestants over here, Roman Catholics over here, answer that question differently. So our answer is the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Anybody know that song? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. We've got a few old timers in the room. All right. But we're not having a hymn sing. Okay. Or a chorusing anytime soon. Sorry, James. Yeah. So the Roman Catholic Church says 
the Bible. And um, the Council of Trent, they added books to it. So their Bible is longer. Ours is 66 books. Theirs is, I don't know, what, 78 or something like that. So we have the Bible. Uh, Popes and tradition. So I remember studying in a Catholic university, taking a theology course one time, and I asked the professor, pretty much in these words, who's right when the Bible and the Pope's views differ? Or who's right when the Bible and tradition's view differ? And her response was, it's a both-and thing, which makes no sense to me at all. Okay? But that was the, the, the response. It's a both-and thing. Never forget it. That's when I dropped out of that program. So we would say, because this is our mindset, right? Well, why would you come up with purgatory when it's not in the Bible? I don't see it in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. But our view of where authority lies is different. If the Pope says it or tradition teaches it, then it's true. This is a huge problem for Catholics, if they're honest, because Popes differ from each other all the time. I mean, at, least, at least tradition is a little more consistent. Popes differ all the time from one another. There was even time where there was a couple, for there was several generations where there was a couple popes because they weren't sure who's the rightful new guy, right? So there was the dueling pope conflict. Um, okay, here's what the Catechism says: All who die in God's grace and friendship. So speaking of believers, purgatory is not for atheists, not for unbelievers, but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. They're still going to do have a new earth. But after death, they shall they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. This is the Catholic Catechism again. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. So Trent, I don't remember when Florence is. Glenn, do you know? Trent's in the 1500s. Yeah, yeah. it's earlier. Okay. I figured that much. Um, they get it out of Maccabees. Yeah, so I'm going to quote in a second here from Judas Maccabeus. So the church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church by reference to certain texts of Scripture, speaks of cleansing fire. So it says, and this is, not, this is quoting from St. John Chrysostom, and Ur, no, this is quoting from St. Benedict the Great. So, uh, for a certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment is a purifying fire, he who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor the age to come, from this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but others in the age to come. But that's the only one. I don't even believe that's what that passage is teaching, but let's say that's true. It doesn't apply that language to lying, stealing. In fact, it, only, it's, it specifically only applies it to one. So then you would think, well, then, if that statement's true, the only people in purgatory would be those that have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But that's not, it doesn't hold weight. So then he goes on to say, this teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Like, oh, sacred scripture. You're going to quote from Ephesians? 
something like that? No. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sins. And so he's quoting from apocryphal literature. So the Apocrypha is composed of several books written in what we call the intertestamental period or the 400-year period of revelatory silence between more or less the end of Maccabees and the writing of the first Gospels. And this is a period of time when religious Jews were recording their history. And those books were written by devoted people and whatnot. Some of it includes some fantasy and others of it, Others of uh, the material is, sounds very biblical, and some of it's historical. But at the Council of Trent, which was called as a result of and as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church had to shore up their view of purgatory because they're being challenged in it. So they took these books, which prior to this had not been formally recognized as canon scripture, and added it to their canon. They were they were maybe useful to understand history or doctrine, but added it to their canon of scripture because it's from books like Maccabees. There's two books, two Maccabean books. They could find proof text to shore up these doctrines that were being challenged on, right? So it's kind of like the cart before the horse. We believe it now. Let's go find a verse to back it up. Well, we can't find one, so let's throw the Apocrypha in our Bible. Um, and then just one other thought here. From the beginning of it, from the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them. I'm not sure where they got that, but above all, the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that, thus purified, they attain the beatific vision of God, the presence of God, seeing him in all his glory. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance be undertaken on behalf of the dead. So then they reference Job, or Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, so why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead would not bring them consolation as well? Is that helpful? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It just, it didn't make it, it just, as evangelical Christians, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. Sure. Where did it come from? Yeah, understandable. Ian? Can you speak a little louder? Sure. Yeah. Therefore, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each will receive for him the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10. We call that the Bema Seat judgment. But that judgment is for believers, and it's a judgment of reward. And it occurs at the final judgment. So there's two judgments mentioned in Scripture. Don't confuse the two. We have the Great White Throne Judgment of Revelation 20. That's a judgment of damnation. So if you're at that one, things are not going well for you. Okay? That's a judgment of damnation. And then there's, there's a judgment of reward, so to speak. But the reward isn't, I got a bigger crown than you. It's God recognizes that we've lived dedicated lives to him, and we return the crown to him, cast it at his feet. So it goes back to God anyway. But it's true that the believer will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. But it's not for judgment. It's for reward, which will be offered back to the Lord. Yeah. 
but that's not the same as purgatory. John? I don't know. I've never read it. Sounds funny, though. I'm sure, it's not. It's a joke. Um, obviously, other like poems and books written by scholars, Augustine. We all love Augustine, right? But a lot of the stuff he wrote, he would not qualify for pastoral ministry in our church. Right? Um, so he might have advanced the theology of the church in certain areas, but he he also was kind of the father of Roman Catholicism in a lot of his beliefs. So other, other writings, other literature affected the Roman Catholic Church. Likewise, writings by men like Thomas Akempis, circa the 1400s, influenced the devotional life and practice of people who would become Protestants. So we have groups of individuals starting to band together in Europe at the time. One group was called the Brethren of the Common Life. And they were influenced by men like Thomas Akempis. And they wanted to kind of get back to the basics. Let's feed the poor. Let's be charitable. charitable. Let's be simple in our lifestyle. And those movements, of course, crossed the bridge into... Protestantism after the Reformation was kicked off and influenced and continued to influence the emphasis on simplicity of church structure in Protestant churches. Um, everybody contributes to the work of the ministry. Those, those kinds of things. We want to be charitable. We want to reach out to the orphan, the widow. It's, it's from the Bible, but those other historical works also had an influence on it. So the, I've heard of the book that you're referring to. I've never read it, so I can't comment directly on its influence. But may very well be an influential text. So um, calls for reform, a few points. We have groups of lay people banding together, and they banded together, not, they didn't come out from under the Roman Catholic Church. For many, it was, the, the idea of coming out from under the Catholic Church would kind of be like a few of us came together and say, you know, are you guys all tired of living in Canada? Anybody tired of it? Tired of the secularism? Tired of the immorality? Okay, we're going to annex Essex County and form our own country. Yeah, how are you going to do that? So that's the notion. How do you do that? How do you bring about reform when the church is society? How does that work? It's one thing for some of you to say, you know what, we're sick and tired of Aaron and Harvest Bible Chapel. We're going and starting our own church down the road. Can't stop it, you can do that. But how do you break from a church which is also your government. It's fascinating that it even happened. Nevertheless, people began to meet together in societies to do the common, to live the common life. So the Brethren of the Common Life that I mentioned, they uh, started in Holland. That was another country that was becoming ripe for reform. People dedicated money to, to church, to ministry, to pilgrimage, for their faith. So we, we do see people demonstrating a heartfelt desire over and above what they were obliged to do to 
honor the Lord. I don't know whether they were born again or not, or what all their beliefs were, but we see like a stirring of the heart of the European peoples to go beyond the structures and the obligations to something that's more heartfelt, for lack of a better way of putting it. And not all popes were opposed to that. So Pope Julius II, who reigned up to the time of the Reformation, so he's five, uh, 1512 to 1517, he, he called bishops together several times, maybe cardinals together several times to try to bring about reforms. There were several meetings, but he had trouble getting anybody there outside of Italy and just hit a whole bunch of roadblocks, so he just wasn't really able to progress. But there was at least some, I'm not sure what his full intentions were, but I know that one of the things he was concerned about was financial corruption in the church. I don't know if he was concerned about doctrinal issues or not, but certainly concerned about financial corruption. So there, there were some, some seeds being planted for reform. But then we come to Martin Luther, and we need to talk about Martin Luther. In a, in a couple of weeks, that mysterious guest I mentioned, he was actually going to tell you more about his life and biography as well as a couple other key players. Um, maybe he'll even come dressed as Martin Luther. I don't, I don't know. But um, a German priest by the name of Martin Luther, who was very intelligent and who probably had one of the greatest abilities to communicate in Europe at the time, was raised by a miner. His father's name was Hans Luther. His father wanted him to go to law. Miners don't normally have sons that go to law. So it was pretty awesome that this guy was able to pay for his son's schooling to even qualify him for that. But uh, Luther had an experience in his life, I won't tell you all of it right now, but he had an experience in his life where he dedicated himself to religious pursuits, left law, later felt guilty because he thought he broke one of the commandments not honoring his dad because his dad wanted him to go to law. But he was always, even as a priest, he the priesthood, he was always riddled with anxiety and uh, second-guessing himself because of sin. We're not talking about mental anxiety. It's just like he was always overwhelmed by his sin, never felt he could shake it off. Very brilliant, finished his doctorate of theology, was immediately offered a teaching position at Wittenberg University. And while he was there, one of his professors uh, suggested to him that he should read the epistles of Paul. Okay, now, one of the schools that I did a degree at was a Lutheran school. And it was very liberal. But I remember sitting in class several times with very brilliant professors and uh, universalists and practicing homosexuals and Lutherans and Anglicans and a very pretty broad moral and ecclesiastical group. And at one point, the professor said, I'm gonna, we're going to go to Judges and we're going to try to do some sermon prep in Judges. But he'd never read Judges. And none of the other class had read Judges. And we were advanced. We weren't master's level students. We were post-grad students. We were studying like for second master's degrees. You had to have a master's degree to get into it. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do you get this far in your schooling and you've never actually read the Bible? 
But this is so foreign to me because my other degrees come from evangelical institutions. But it just struck, it struck me in a very personal way, something I almost kind of knew in theory. And that is that there's a lot of clergy today that actually don't read the Bible. They don't even know the Bible. They study religion, the history of religion, the sociology of religion, the, the original languages, psychology, sociology. But they don't actually study the Bible. It's just not even part of the curriculum. So you get your PhD and you've never read Judges before. Like, how does that happen? So for, for Luther to be that far in his education and really not be familiar with Paul, you'd be thinking, like, how does that even happen? It happened. And it continues to happen. Because the Bible is not their primary source of authority. Tradition actually trumps the Bible when it all comes down to it. So that's this, the context then is not dissimilar from the context we see in many ecclesiastical organizations today. So don't walk into, if you come from an evangelical church and you walk into a non-evangelical church, whatever it might be, and you're like, well, they're going to preach the Bible. Don't assume that. The pastor may not know the Bible or very little of the Bible, or it's certainly not his or her primary text. Very important for us to understand that so we can engage with people properly. So what Luther did, now, this is interesting. So you probably all heard of his 95 theses, which he posted on the church door at Wittenberg. And basically, he wrote out like 95 challenges or difficulties he had with the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm like, well, that, that was a kind of a cool idea. It wasn't his idea. Luther probably wasn't trying to bring about overt reform. Like things went further ahead as a result of his life than he probably expected at the time. That was very common for scholars that wanted to engage in a public debate to do that. So I'm going to post my debate points on the church door, and then I'm going to host a public debate. He may have done it before. We don't know. When he's debating Tetzel or other people. Who knows? So he posts it on the door. But, um, of course, and by, by the way, he, he's, how this all came about is he started re- reading Paul's letters, and he was into Romans, and he's like blown away by justification by grace grace passages. He just, he just never considered that before. So there's a period of time of contemplation, study, starts to study it more, and then the reaction is the 95 Theses, right? So he was, he was surprised to discover that religious practices and penance don't give salvation. That God's free grace, which is received by faith, is the means of salvation. He just didn't, didn't even know that. What you need to just as an aside, it's really important for you when you're talking about the differences of theology between Catholics and Protestants, it's really, really important for you to remember the word alone. It's a very, very important word. If you don't use this word over and over again, you're going to be really confused because Catholics believe in grace, they believe in faith, they believe in the atonement of Christ, they believe in salvation by faith, they believe that Christ's death is sufficient for sin, they believe the Bible is God's word, like all of that. If you're just like using all those words, you're like we're kind of on the same page. And this is why in my ministry, over and over and over and over again, I've had people react to statements that I might make 
about the differences between the Roman Catholic Church. Because I, I was a Catholic, or I have Catholic friends, and I ask them, like, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And they're like, yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins? Yes, I do. Are you trusting in God's grace to save you? Of course I am. Do you believe that God needs to forgive your sins? And you're like, well, why are you? There's no difference. But it's because we're not being precise. And a true Roman Catholic can never attach the word alone to any of those statements. That's the critical difference. So you could say, do you believe, do you believe the Bible is God's word? Yeah. Do you believe the Bible is God's authoritative word alone? An informed Catholic can't say yes. They can't. You say, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and his merit is sufficient all by itself to forgive you of your sins? No, you can't say that. If you do, you're not a Catholic or you're a really bad Catholic. It's like a Muslim saying, I don't like Muhammad, but I'm still a Muslim. No, you're not allowed to do that. So that's why the Protestant reformers used the word sola. You may have heard that. It's just the Latin because Latin was like the language of discourse at the time. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Those alone, sola, sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus, it's alone, 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 alone. That was the, that's the critical. In fact, if you hear nothing else in this whole course, if you get that, you'll understand the difference. It's just so helpful. So the, jokingly, what I like to say is if a, a Roman Catholic is prepared to say alone, then they're a really bad Catholic. Likewise, if a Protestant is not prepared to say alone, they're a really bad Protestant. That's how it works. So obviously there are people within religions that don't even know what their religion teaches or their belief teaches. So we're not talking about individual beliefs. We're talking about like official declarations of what these groups believe. There's obviously born-again people in the Roman Catholic Church, but they're terrible Catholics, thank God, right? All right, so uh, a couple more points, and then we'll, we'll finish up for the night. Two hours has gone by really quick. So he was, just, he was really surprised to discover that religious practices and penances didn't give salvation, but that God's free grace received by faith. So we say grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Saved, and he posts them. Now, people start to read them. They start being printed. They start being translated. They're being circulated through Europe. And, of course, what do you think is going to happen next? There's a reaction. So we have, like, the anti-reformation, right? And in 1520, October of 1520, three years after the 95 Theses went on the door, the Pope writes what's called a papal bull. Not an animal with horns, but it's a document, an authoritative document, which offers a condemnation or an official declaration. So in this papal bull... 41 beliefs of the 95 were condemned by the Pope as, quote, heretical, offensive to pious ears, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff there. So he was given 60 days to repent of his teachings and recant them. And obviously he didn't, or he wouldn't be here. So Luther's reaction was a couple months later in December, because now he's getting a lot of flack and there's threats, and one of the local overlords has to protect him. Because again, government church, very much connected. In December 1520, he and a crowd burned the papal bull and burned several Catholic documents. 
canon law books, other Roman Catholic theological books at Wittenberg because they had burned his 95 theses. So these were, you might say it's kind of immature, but I don't think that was, that maybe is more of a modern notion. It was more of a dec a public declaration because everything, when you have debate, it's all in public. It's not like online, if you, what people do when they're mad at me is they block me on Facebook. Um, it hurts. I just want to acknowledge that. But back in the day, you do stuff in the public square, right? So let's pile up the books, let's, have, let's burn them all. And that's a public statement. So now we're creating two sides. Like the, Pardon me? That was their social media, yeah. And much more fun, really. And somewhat of, I think. Much more. What's that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> now that's, that's just terrible to me that someone would, I don't know. Like in your humanity, you could see maybe executing someone quickly, but burning someone at the stake, I just find that is just demonic, just unbelievable. But... Yeah, people that they thought were heretics. So Huss and the Czech, Czech now what we call the Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic. So essentially the battle lines were drawn. And again, if you didn't write them down, there's four main, actually maybe we could use the square as an example, right? So there's, there's four sides of the box are you in the box or are you out of the box? So the, the four main disagreements were how is a person saved? Now that, that language of saved wasn't necessarily the word being used a lot, but how is a person justified or made righteous? Where does religious authority lie? Here? Here? Somewhere else? Where does it lie? That's kind of an important question. What is the church? Is it a collection of clergymen, nobles and popes and bishops and hierarchy, or is it a believer's church? Is the church composed of all believers, or is it just composed of clergymen? And what is the core of Christian living? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Those were the battle lines that were drawn. And the two opposing sides answered those questions very differently. Very differently. So similar sentiments were sweeping across Europe for reasons we've already listed. But Luther's dispute was really the most conflictual at, at the beginning. So it was starting to happen elsewhere, but this is the one that brought the fury of the Pope. It brought civil unrest. It brought, you know, brought the, the burning of the books in the, in the town square and that kind of thing. But again, Luther was studying scripture. He was fascinated by Jesus being forsaken by the Father and the implication that Jesus bore sinful people's guilt. And I'll just tell you, that battle is still raging today now in the Protestant church. There's people that no longer believe in penal substitutionary atonement. They call themselves evangelicals. I had a guy challenge me a couple weeks ago after church. That the father didn't wasn't or the son was not forsaken by the father. That's false, and and these kinds of basic Reformation truths are 
and will continue to be challenged. So the, the Reformation is not a one-time only event. It's kind of, we always need to be reforming. Not just in terms of ministry style and music, which is what most people are interested in. But we always need to make sure that we're, we're, we're being pure in terms of our, our beliefs. Because uh, it's too easy to just believe what we were taught because that's what we were taught and that's where we are and that's just the way it is and we're never going to change and nobody's given me the right to say anything. And uh, I've been there, done that. I was raised in that tradition. I'm just not interested in it. Thankful for aspects of it, but not interested in being there anymore. So... Uh, if you want to, I'll just take you to, to one verse. And sorry, this isn't a Bible study. It's more of a theological, historical course. But um, I, I want to reference this verse where it says, uh, this is Romans 1.17, by the way. This is the verse that... Even two years before he published the 95 Theses, really gripped Luther's heart. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that was revolutionary for him, because he'd been taught and educated to think the righteous shall live by faith, and penance, and indulgences, and good works, and there's never really any true assurance of salvation because it's kind of based upon how good I am in the moment. So the idea that a, res a, a faith response to a free offer of grace was sufficient to radically change someone and to secure them in God's sight for all of eternity, that was just like revolutionary. And so that's the verse that really gripped his heart and brought about his conversion, and that was the verse upon which we could say that the Protestant Reformation was launched. Josie? Uh, and that is when came the word alone, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Alone, because yeah. in Catholicism, it's not alone. Right. It's Christ that is, for example, in Mexico, it's mm. very, very strong the belief in a Virgin Mary. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, no, they're not, the churches, they don't invite us or tell us or yeah. ask us to read the Bible ever, ever. So whatever we make us believe is about the, uh, like uh, the nativity, mm -hmm. about the nativity in Mary is who has most of the power to, be, to yeah. believe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we're not anti-Mary. Okay. We believe that Mary was a godly woman, an awesome woman. And God selected her as a awesome believer and a pious woman of great faith and all that. But she doesn't exceed any other great believer in the Bible in terms of her positional righteousness. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So Mary was not perpetually perfect. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's made up. Again, a great woman. People are like, well, there's no sins recorded about her. Well, neither is there sins recorded about Daniel. 
right? There's no negatives recorded about Daniel in the Bible or his three buddies, Rack Shack and Benny, right? There's no negatives recorded there. But Romans tells us all have sinned. So either all means all or all doesn't mean all. So the, the perpetual uh, perfection of Mary is a myth. And it's not even necessary because we have Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior of the world. All right. Hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for engaging. And we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Have a great night. <laughs>